Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. And normally, I'm the host, Bill Real, but today we have Chris Bloxham back with us. Uh, Chris, say hello to everybody. Hey, how are you? Good, excellent. Today, what we're going to do is several months back, I reached out to the listeners and asked the question of if we did an episode where they could... You guys, as the listeners, could ask me anything you wanted. What would you ask? And messages begin to flood in through Facebook, through email, through the podcast uh, post that announced this kind of an episode. And so tonight we're following up on that. Chris has got all the questions that you guys put together. And so tonight I hope is a chance to kind of get to know Bill Real a little better. And and I think Chris has added a few extra questions. I don't think he's pulling any punches tonight. And uh, we'll just dive into it, but I'll just turn the time over to you, Chris. And tonight, you're the host, my friend. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, trusting me with such a uh, a serious discussion, Bill. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This will be a lot of fun. <clears throat> okay, so hopping right into it, you moved from Sandusky two years ago to St. George. Uh, how's it been so far? What would you say has been your biggest um, challenge? What's the biggest difference from Sandusky to St. George? And how is your family handling the transition? So the the move was risky in some ways, right? I mean, to to jump over to St. George where we don't have any family there, we, we don't have uh, any long-term friendships that we've built. I'm taking a new job opportunity. Our, our kids have to go into new schools. It was really scary and it was quite a risk, but, uh, we did it and the positives have just been enormous. I'll hit the negatives first. The negatives are for, for our kids who, uh, were to been, you know, 16 years old, 14 years old and like 11 and nine. It was difficult, I think, for them to kind of get transitioned into a new school, form new friendships and, and to kind of fit in. But for, for, us as a family, the move has been amazing. The the job, I work with Family Pond. Actually, Chris, with you as the owner, this has just been a blast. I mean, we've had a chance on lots of occasions to to talk about Mormonism. Um, we've kind of hit it off as far as friends. Uh, our families have kind of hit it off. And, and it's just been like a lot of fun to be out here. We left our snow shovels. Uh, in Ohio, we had six snow shovels, one for each of us. And so when, when the snow came down, uh, we each would grab a shovel and, and clear out our 25 foot long driveway of, you know, nine inches of snow. And, and we've come out here and left those back there. The weather's been great. Uh, we feel like it's been a good fit in the ward that we're in. We feel like the community's been a lot of fun. And in the the job opportunity and the chance to to be around you and talk Mormonism all the time has just been an absolute blast. Well, thanks, man. Um, a lot of days we don't get a whole lot of work done because no. of the uh, fun discussions. <laughs> no, no, and that's the truth. I mean, you know, we get together and we're hashing out uh, race and priesthood or Book of Abraham or pick your subject, but we just throw it against the wall and dissect it one more time. What was it the other day? Um, we started to get some work done and. I think you, it, it, maybe it was me. One of us brought up Lucinda Harris. What, what do you think about <laughs> Lucinda Harris? <laughs> Two and a half hours later, <laughs> we're still right, standing we're, there. 
we're locking the doors and walking out to our cars. And it is. It's amazing, right? I mean, Mormonism is so deep and rich, and there's so many different angles and places you can go. Like, like Mormonism has more nooks and crannies, and and some of those crannies and nooks are, are in these dark closets, and there's so much fun just kind of throwing all the clothes out of the closet and inspecting each one and then putting them back in. I, I don't think we can ever grow bored of of this religion called Mormonism. Tell me this. A lot of people uh, refer to moving to Utah as something that they're usually not that excited about. Um, you know, where you were from is generally referred to as the mission field. Did you guys see anything negative about moving to Utah, or has there been anything negative about your move to Utah? So when you look at a traditional ward out in the mission field, the wards are smaller, they're geographically take up a lot more area. And so people are coming in from a half an hour, 45 minutes away just to get to the ward building. And and as when I would go out and do my home teaching, I would have like seven families assigned to me and, and they weren't just in, in different cities. They were at times in different counties. And so it would take me two and a half hours to, to drive and see this family and then go see that family and then drive back across the ward boundary and go see another one. And, and, but the wards there, they were, they were grateful. If you just had a heartbeat and, and you were showing up on Sunday and you were willing to say yes to a calling, like they just wanted you there. It didn't matter if you had a different view. It didn't matter. You know, it, it wouldn't matter really what you believe necessarily. Like they were just grateful to have you as part of the, the fold and the relationships out there in, in Ohio, like people in the ward, we would go out to dinner together and we would be with each other at least monthly and sometimes even weekly. And it feels like when you come out here to Utah, like your ward is within three blocks of your home. And I, I think people, the relationships are a little harder to form. At least for me, it's been that way. So, I, I, you know, there are positive aspects back there, but I've come to a great war. Like I've, we've got a great bishop. We've got a, a great stake president and, and there are members that we've spent some time with and gotten to know. And, and I truly treasure those relationships. Um, let's hop into some of the episodes that have stood out amongst the many that you've done. What what number are you up to? How many episodes have you released since you started Mormon Discussion? Oh, I think we're at like episode 264, somewhere around there. So do you release an episode or do you try to do one once a week, every two weeks? So in the past, when we first got started, I don't know what it was now, four years ago, we I was trying to release an episode every week and and I think now we're to the point where we're releasing like a premium episode one week and then a free episode the next. So if you're a premium listener, you're getting something new every other week. If you're, if you're not a premium listener, and I would encourage everyone to be, by the way, Chris, but if you're not a premium listener, I would, uh, you'll, you'll get an episode about every other week as well. And, uh, I think it's a good fit. I, I feel like I'm releasing as much material as any other podcast out there right now. And, and I'm sure at some point I'm going to, kind of hit a wall and and run out of some stuff and we'll have to spread that out a little bit maybe for a while but but as of right now it's every other week why do you think it's done so well did you ever imagine it would have it's it would have done as well as it has no I, when i first started 
I went to, I don't remember, Walmart or somewhere and just grabbed a Logitech headset and just recorded a couple of episodes on the doctrine of Christ. And, and it was just, it, what, what it was, Chris, is it was a chance for me in the middle of my faith crisis and having nobody around me to understand these issues. It was a way for me just to vocalize it, just to say those things out loud. And, uh, and I remember getting into like episode four or five. And all of a sudden I get like my first email from somebody who says, Hey, I found your podcast and I'm really liking it. And, and so as time went on, I began to pick up doing some interviews. I think my first interview was with Brian Whitney, who worked for a time with the church history department. And, uh, uh, Brittany Hartley was another one that I did early on. And then I remember my first interview with somebody who was well known. It was Brad Wilcox, the LDS author who, who wrote the continuous atonement and whatnot. And, and I think it was about the time that I interviewed Brad that I realized like, oh my goodness, this is beginning to really take some footing. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun, but no, I never expected it to, to do as well as it's done. And it really was just a sounding board for, for my own mind, uh, when I started. How do you decide which episodes you're, you are going to release as premium compared to just releasing? So almost every episode, I mean, essentially 95%, maybe more than that, of the episodes go premium first before they go free. The the ones that I decide to, to just release free generally are super time sensitive or they're just, they're just so important uh, in terms of the conversation that uh, they just, they just have to go out right away. But generally speaking, most of them do go premium first. So... Bill, one of the most powerful episodes you ever did was called Our Bad Days. Could you talk about how that came to be and if you still experience those feelings uh, today? Yeah, yeah. That episode was so unusual because maybe to give a little bit of a backstory, after I got done recording it, I listened to it. And, and I was literally just so close to not releasing it, just throwing it right in the trash can because I worried, I worried that being that vulnerable about my own, my own tough experience with, with transitioning in my faith that, that listeners didn't want to hear that. Like my job was to help people stay in the church. And, and that episode was me saying like, look, I am often saying the right things and I'm often trying to encourage the listeners to stay. But what you guys don't know is that I'm really hurting inside and that I've, and that I'm in the middle of just this really raw, painful experience. And, and so I record the episode and I remember in my head, like, I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm living a double life. Like some days really hurt. And I don't tell the audience that because I don't want to be the reason anybody, anybody loses faith. Like I want to be, I want to be some piece of the puzzle that helps these folks stay in. And, and I remember recording it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I'm really hurting. And here it is. And just kind of throwing all that up and, and sharing it with the, with the listeners. And I remember too, like when that episode was over and I released it, I was scared. Like I was scared that people were going to begin writing me and saying, Bill, thanks a lot. Like I can't come back from that. And, and what happened instead was I got like literally hundreds of emails just on that one episode. 
just in that one episode and they were they were so positive like people were like thank you and and there were lots of listeners that said like like I liked your podcast but that's the very first moment I connected with you as a as a human being who was going through the same thing I was going through and and up until that episode I I really tried to kind of hide it because I just didn't want to be responsible for anybody losing faith and and maybe to carry it out a step like I think we do this in our wards and we do this in our church we we hide the reality of what's going on with with our messy life in fear that somebody else is going to be traumatized by that vulnerability and I think the reality is that once you really say like the heck with it I'm going to be vulnerable like people begin to see the real you and 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 throughout the time that I've done that, it, it, it feels like the responses are just overwhelmingly positive to, to real vulnerability or, or transparency with ourselves. We just, we just open ourselves up and let people see what that looks like. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Have you ever recorded an episode and then not aired it? Just kind of erased it? <laughs> so I'm laughing because, and I'm going to edit it and put it back up, but but the listener will kind of know this moment because we just released free the Gone Are the Days episode and and I ended up having to pull it the day after I released it because I listened to it the next morning because I hadn't recorded I recorded it back in January and here we are May second May second and I uh, I had to pull it because it just wasn't the tone I wanted for where I'm at at this very moment and so I'm gonna just take another look at it tomorrow do a few little edits and then we'll get it back up and running but. But yeah, I've recorded episodes. I did one episode early on <laughs> where I was just being stupid and I recorded this like dumb stand-up comedy type act and, and it, I let it go out there and I left it out there for about 12 minutes and then I pulled it back and just threw it out. It was just, it was just dumb. So there's times where I've tried to be funny. There's a few times where I've recorded an episode that, um, I, I either just didn't like it. I mean, that's been maybe once or twice where I just listened to it. I just didn't like it. And, and then there's been a time or two where I just vented and got done and listened to it. And the tone was just so, so harsh that it just, it was ethically wrong to just send that out as if it represented what I thought when it only represented what I thought in a given moment. Um, but anyway. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have a, do you have a favorite or a couple of favorites? that you stick out? Yeah. Um, the, when people say like, what is it? What's the way you frame things? What's the, what's your personality? What are the things that the, the episodes I want to point people towards is white shirts, the white shirts phenomenon, which to me was like the very first episode I do where I'm just tearing down Mormon culture and, and pointing us back to, to doctrine and and then the other one I I really liked a lot that I like pointing people to uh is the April sixth um where I discuss kind of this cultural belief in our church and we've stated it in the sense from a doctrinal position as well, but this idea that Jesus was born on April sixth, uh eighteen hundred and thirty years before the the organization of the church and and kind of dissecting that. And, and those two episodes were so much fun for me that I realized that, and again, I don't mean this arrogantly, but I realized at that moment that I had a knack 
for seeing through the messiness of where culture and history and theology and doctrine all kind of get into this cancerous knot and, and kind of realizing that I had a way of kind of untangling those, dissecting them and, and then trying to kind of in my own mind put them back together and vocalizing that. And so the, the white shirts phenomenon, the April 6th episode are, are two that I really loved, uh, doing. They're, they're, they're episodes that I consider my favorites. Do you have uh, an episode or two that you uh, wish you never would have released that are still out there? <laughs> I know you give me you give me a hard time for the uh, the one I did on the Jedi faith and oh, the yeah and, man oh, Chris talk, Chris talk about that for a moment oh my word I can't even uh, that's one that I think was probably a you probably regretted it. it after I no 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 it. I like it I like it but you have never let me off the hook on ah. that. <laughs> the other one, man. what was the other weird religion I did? There was another weird religion, like within a week of that one, uh, the Raelian faith. Remember that one? Yeah. yeah. So, the, so their, their leader went up into space because he was abducted by aliens and he sat down with Jesus, Muhammad and Joseph Smith and had dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. Did you get any, did you get any pushback or any comments on that one? After you uh, released it? There, I don't, you know, probably a surprise to you. There wasn't really a whole lot of commentary. Um, but I did get one or two positive comments, nothing really negative, but it certainly wasn't one that uh, the listeners are still responding to today. It, it's not getting a lot of downloads, if that's, if that's what you're asking. Well, let me, uh, let me move on to something, um, kind of shift into something more serious. Um, what would you say, at what point do you personally decide whether or not something is spoken by a prophet um, from you know, from God, or is it just a man speaking as a man? Do you have a um, a formula or a, a process that you go through? Um, when I look at issues, and I'm trying to figure out, like, there's lots of things that are factors. One is, one is my gut. What does my gut tell me? Does my gut tell me this feels right? Does my gut tell me this is going to hurt somebody? Does my gut tell me that this just feels really wrong? Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is that I like to dive into the history and, and I like to look at all the different, uh, quotes that exist on a given issue. And so I'll dive back and see, you know, just Google search to death, looking through 36 pages of results, trying to find any angle to that subject or that issue so that I become well-rounded on it and, and try to understand it inside and out. And, and sometimes I've even gone to the expense of, like I'll find the, the written document on on a talk and just not feel comfortable with it and go back and listen to the audio, for instance, and and find there to be an actual difference that, that there was a transcription error, for instance. Um, that happened on the April 6th episode when I got Spencer W. Kimball uh, saying something different in the audio uh, dedication that he was doing versus how it made its way into the Leah Honer or the Enzyme. But so, so whether it be just studying it out to death, uh, my gut feeling, um, prayer and, and pondering, uh, on the subject, kind of looking at where we've been on the history, where we've been on the theology, seeing if any leaders given any kind of room to, to think differently. And, and, and really that stems from, I was in a discussion board when I first, first entered my crisis. 
and I felt like I had a good handle on Mormonism. And I went into a discussion board and was asking about the fall. And, and some other person in the discussion board shared with me that Eve being made from a rib was taught to be symbolic by our leaders. And I didn't know that. And it was eye opening for me, having read Mormonism more than anyone in my, you know, around me to recognize that I don't know everything and, and there's lots to still learn. And, and so I don't know, man, the DNC talks about by study and by faith. And I think both of those two words, study and faith encompass a lot of other things. And I just try to weigh all those things together. But, but I guess at the end of the day, man, my, my gut or the, the Holy ghost within me, call it what you may like that at the end of the day is my barometer for making a decision on whether something is going to be part of who I am or it's going to be set off to the side. Do you still pray? Yeah, but it's different. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years with, uh, Thomas Worthland McConkie and consider him a great friend. And my, my prayer is more, I don't want to say like I'm a meditation nut. I don't, I don't sit every night and meditate, but I have like this, these moments on my drives to work and my drive home and laying in my bed at night before I go to bed where I just try to be aware of what happened that day and be aware of what, what's going to happen the next day and kind of just, Leave some silence and some, some space just to kind of, I don't know, take into account where I'm at in the world and, uh, and kind of where, where I need to kind of focus my attention going forward. Okay. So other Mormon, uh, traditional Mormon ritual things, do you have your, your supply of, uh, food? <laughs> so no, I don't. And <laughs> honestly, man, if, if, Getting back to live with God is, you know, one of the questions at that gate is going to be if I've got 26 cans of flour sitting in my, in my attic, like I, I just don't. Um, am, am I doing the Mormon things? Like, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, if you're going to say like, am I fasting like once a month on the first Sunday of the month, the way the church prescribes, like, yeah. Oh. Are you having family night every Monday? Are you reading the book of Mormon in the morning before your kids go to school? Are we doing of- family home evening? Absolutely. Like, like we go out and we do something and we used to not do this. Like back in Ohio as an active member of the church, one who, who was constantly serving in a leadership position, like my evenings were taken and, and I sacrificed my time in the here and now with my family in hopes of having something on the other side with them. And, and today where I'm at, like I don't take today for granted. And so like, for instance, Chris, you and I talked about recording this episode last night and, and I call you at the last minute and, and I'm sorry to you, my friend, but I call you at the last minute and I say, my family wants to go out to dinner as a family and that's what we're going to go do. And, and there's nights where I come home from work and I say, okay, everybody, let's jump in the car and we're going to go bowling. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we, we jumped in the vehicle and we went out and, and played miniature golf with my, my son and his girlfriend who was here from Ohio. And like, like those are sacred moments. And, and I know like there'll be somebody listening who goes, that's not family home evening. And I would say, how dare you? Like it is family home evening. Like, like I've had experiences with my family out here that have been a hundred times more real than us kneeling around and reading a lesson about Lehi's tree out of a book. Hmm. Wow, man. That's, that's cool. That's great. 
Let me ask you this. Um, when's the last time you attended the temple? You, you hold a current recommend, right? I hold a current recommend. Um, I haven't been to the temple in, I want to say maybe two and a half years. And the last time we went... Two and a half years? Two and a half years. <laughs> Man, how are you going to go years. to heaven? What about all your debt? What about all your uh, family members that you haven't done work for? So I would welcome any lifelong Latter-day Saint to compare their family history work with mine. Um, if we're going to talk about dunking uh, on behalf of those who are dead, uh, I, I'm, again, I'm not saying like, like, oh, I've I've got it all done, and and how how dare anybody ask me about it? But I would say like, I've had a time in my life where I focused my attention in that area, and and I did get a lot done in that time and in that season. Um, in terms of going to the temple, I mean, I don't know, two and a half years ago, we, we went to our temple in Ohio, Columbus. We went to the Salt Lake City temple on a visit out to Salt Lake City, uh, and did a live session there. Um, but since being here in St. George, like, I don't, again, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm just in a different place. And the temple isn't an easy thing for me. And it never was like my very first experience walking into the temple was hard and and I remember going through the endowment and and I was just a convert of the church I'd been a member like a year and a half two years and I I go to the temple in Washington DC and I do the endowment session and as I'm going through and I've I've got the the temple clothing on and I'm going through the temple rituals with all the things that that involves and I remember looking around to my left and to my right and, and like for just a brief moment going, what is this? Like, this is not, this is not what happens on Sunday. What is this that, that I signed up for? And, and honestly, through the years when I've gone to the temple, I felt good about doing baptisms for the dead when going with the youth. And, and I don't have a problem going and doing, um, uh, a wash, washing and anointing session. I, I love that ritual, that ordinance. And I still find deep, like deep meaning in the temple. But I'm just not driven. Like I, I think most people, when they go through these, through these faith transitions, like you come out the other side, and you're and, and people who are still in like a Fowler stage three are looking at you and wondering why you are not so focused on the accomplishing of these outward things. And I'm just not driven that way. And I, I'm not opposed to going if if you know we want to go, let's go do it. I guess if there's a ceiling session, I'm happy to show up for that. If there's if, if if you and I are going to go, I mean, we can we can go do a session like that. But I just well, don't let's feel go, man. Driven. Well, let's Why do it. Go, let's, let's go next week. Let's just. Here, I'm going to hang up right now. I'm going to grab my <laughs> grab my temple clothing and we're going to go. <laughs> I, well, I'm not opposed to the temple, I, and I think it's a beautiful place. And I've had divine experiences inside. I just I'm just in a different place where it's not something like I I mark up on my calendar, and if I don't do it. Somehow the relationship between me and God is now less than. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to push on you, but let me. Um, why would you want to hold a recommend if you're not going to use it? Because it's my way of having a relationship between me and God where, where I'm letting him know that I'm still in this thing, right? That I'm, that I'm still part of this tribe. That I'm still one of them, even if I find myself on the fringes of the space that that tent covers. That to be Mormon is to be 
is to say I'm worthy, right? That's part of Mormonism. And, and I'm all for people having, you know, diverse beliefs and having room for nuance and a safe space. And, and, and I don't, I mean, no offense to somebody who in their authenticity doesn't qualify for a temple recommend or at least doesn't in the eyes of their leader. But for me, the temple questions aren't, aren't seriously difficult and, and I'm lucky in some ways. And so for me to get a recommend is, is not this hard thing. And, and so if, if maybe I can, you know, maybe between me and God, like that's just something I can do just to hold that and, and to still hold this space of being part of this tribe. I'm thinking about your answer. And so you would absolutely validate someone holding a recommend, but not, not using it, like not even using it for years, but still going in every two years and renewing the recommend. And you would say that that is, uh, you would say that that is a, uh, a kind of a validation between you and God. Yeah. And more than that, right? I mean, like, I'm not saying I'm never going to go to the temple. I'm just saying like right now I haven't gone in a while and, and that doesn't mean I won't go tomorrow night or I won't go next week. And so why, why wouldn't I have a recommend? I'm, I'm Mormon and I'm worthy. And I qualify under the terms of those questions. And I feel honest in my heart when I answer my leader, when he asks those questions, why not hold a recommend? Like, like just because I'm not going to go, just because I didn't go yesterday and I didn't go last week and I didn't go last month. Does that mean that I just shouldn't even go to get a recommend? Like I, part of being Mormon is this little card you carry. And, and I don't care what the necessarily what the leader how he interprets those questions. But when that leader asks those questions, I'm deeply focused on my relationship with God and, and answering those questions to the best of my ability. And I think answering them faithfully and honestly. And, and so what that leader gives me is this piece of paper and, and sure there's some merit to him thinking I'm worthy, but the real value there is that this is just something that I do as a Mormon between me and me and God. So, Bill, let's move on to um, kind of another big question. I, I hope you're okay with these with these more difficult questions. Um, so, Doctrine and Covenants, section one, verse thirty. Uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with it, but it's the it's the verse that says. That out of a, out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, which uh, I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. How do you interpret that scripture? Do you, do you interpret it as there's only one church and that God is well pleased with? So you've asked uh, what I consider a really interesting question. And, and I frame this question really differently. And, and I should say, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I, I have this ability within myself to compartmentalize kind of how I think of things. And so like I give merit and validation to the fact that a part of my brain says like there is a chance this is the true church and I'm going to have faith in that. I'm going to hope in that, that this church was divinely called out of, out of, out of, you know, the obscurity of the wilderness from which the woman comes forth in Revelation that, that Joseph Smith hits on in the DNC. And, and that this church really did get called by God to administer the saving ordinances and that in some way 
this church is true and living in the way that the church kind of defines itself. But I also at the same time, kind of in some other place in my head, kind of realize that intellectually that doesn't work. Intellectually, it's, it's such a unreasonable statement to make that this one church with all its flaws and problems is the one true church on the earth and all the other churches are not true and all the other churches are not living. And, and as I've thought about that, one of the ways I've tried to kind of connect these, these two perspectives within myself is, is to kind of realize that when I've looked at my life and having come through my faith development and wherever, wherever people want to judge me as being at in this very moment, like I'm grateful for where I'm at. And the only way I got here was because of the unhealthiness of Mormonism. And, and so what I mean is that it's easy to expect the true and living church to fit perfectly. It's, it's easy to expect the true and living church to add up and for all the dots to connect. But the reality is that it's, it's only when a church has some unhealthiness, when it has some shadows, when, when it provides a tension with you and me as human beings where we kind of have to like hit a wall and realize like something's not right here. It's like only in that tension, that unhealthiness, that I think a church can really be true and living. True in the sense that it sets us on a straight path to, to the way that Jesus spoke of, that it sets us on a path to do what Jesus spoke of, which is to lose ourselves, to find ourselves, to be last so that we can be first. Like Jesus is constantly calling us to wake up and to open our eyes. And I really think that the unhealthiness of a church, the unhealthiness of religion is what wakes us up. And so in some ways I look back at Mormonism and I say, thank you for being unhealthy. Thank you for, for having these flaws. Thank you for being full of paradoxes and contradictions because it's because of those that I've come through this faith development. And, and so in the end, it, it may be all the things the critic points to that actually makes Mormonism true and living. And it may be the things that the church wants to hold up as its greatest attributes that keeps the church from being true and living, at least at times. Wow, man, that's really beautifully said. And I should add, Chris, like, let me, let me just stop for a second. I should add too, like, and I'll let you go into that, but I should add too, like, DNC is a section 10. It's, mm-hmm. it's written in 1829. It's a, over a year and a half before the church is organized. And, and the voice of Christ coming through the prophet Joseph Smith says that all who repent and come unto me are of my church. Like, like I validate that Pope Francis is called and authorized. I validate that, that good people in other churches are helping God's work progress. Hence, they are called and authorized. Like, I don't pretend that only Mormonism has truth. I don't pretend that Mormonism has all truth. I don't pretend that only Mormons have priesthood. Like, priesthood is the power and authority of God. And anybody who acts 
on behalf of God to, to strengthen the feeble knees and lift the hands that hang down and to help God's children get back to him are using his power and his authority. Like, like to say miracles only occur in Mormonism is silly. To say only prophets, seers, and revelators are called and authorized is silly. Like President Kimball said Mohammed and Confucius and, and the reformers, and we talk about the founders of the Constitution, like these men were inspired from on high and called to deliver spiritual and moral truths to guide their people. The word church can be a lot bigger than just 0.2% of the human population. Like Mormonism may have some sacred role to play, and I hope in that, but we're, but we're all busy about God's work. And it's a lot bigger than Mormonism. As Orson F. Whitney said, this work is too large, too arduous that, that the non-member is among the auxiliaries of the church. And, and I just like that inclusiveness. Um, wow, man. That was a beautiful answer, man. Really good, really good riff. Um, well, on that same vein, Bill, let's, let's, let me ask you, what you make of Richard Bushman's statement last year where he said that the dominant narrative isn't true. How do you, how do you reconcile that and still maintain your membership in the church? So in granting the church charity, I also have to recognize that from Joseph Smith to this very moment, the church leaders and the curriculum writers and the local leaders and us as lay members, we've all overreached. We've all tried to, tried to give answers to questions. In some ways, we've all played Bruce R. McConkie, right? Every one of us have been Bruce R. McConkie. We've, we've tried to say that Mormonism answers all the questions and any question that arises, we'll find an answer to because we love that certainty. If there's anything that's, that's central, to being a Mormon, it's being certain. And you got that and, right. And, right? And in that, and in that certainty, we've all overreached. We've, we've moved beyond the mark. As Patrick Mason says, we just loaded up the truth cart and now so many things in that truth cart are just rotting and they stink and they just have to be dumped out. And, uh, so when, when Bushman says that the dominant narrative isn't true, like I say, amen. Like the story we've told about Nephite spectacles, the stories we've told about Zelf in the Garden of Eden in Missouri and, um, you know, the, the standard that we've set prophets, seers and revelators uh, up for, the, the, the pedestal we've placed them on, uh, the way in which we've framed what doctrine is, the way in which we've understood, um, in the past, what we would call doctrine that today we would say is a disavowed theory, um, recognizing that when it comes to issues of the word of wisdom, maybe we overreach. When it comes to issues of, of tithing, maybe we, we set one standard when we shouldn't have. Like, we have to get to a place, Chris, where we're willing to say, like, the story we've told ourselves for 200 years, that story isn't true. And we just have to cast it off and dig a little deeper and see if there's something underneath, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, no matter how much it compels us to let go of our certainty. And for the first time, maybe in our, our cultural lives to use faith for the meaning that it really holds. 
just to dig below the surface and see a story that lays there that is just way more real, way more authentic, way more factual. And we're just going to have to let go of all the, all the rules and behaviors and procedures that surround the false story we've told ourselves. I know Bushman didn't expound a whole lot, but I think, I think what Bushman was trying to say was that we've, we've tried to give ourselves a faith affirming story that would allow each of us to stand up on fast Sunday and say, I know with every fiber of my being that this is the true church, that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that Thomas S. Monson is his prophet today. I just think we have to learn to kind of let go of the narrative. And what we end up with maybe is rather than saying, I know with every fiber of my being, we say something like, man, this is messy. This is, this is paradoxical at every, at every turn, but I still hope there's something divine going on here. Do you think that the, or do you believe that the Book of Mormon was written by ancient people? Um, I'm back and forth here. Like I, I want to make some space that there may be some echo of an ancient story in the Book of Mormon. But I think along with Bushman and, and Sam Brown and Adam Miller and, uh, uh, Patrick Mason and, and Grant Hardy even recently, like every one of these really wise voices in our faith tradition, every one of them is beginning to step forward and say, like, we frame this as a 100% completely ancient document. And even the apologetic responses for the 19th century stuff that's in there, it's unsatisfactory and it doesn't work that we're going to have to let go let go of a lot more of what we used to think was ancient and, and leave a lot more space for Joseph's to have added his, his own identity, his own culture, his own stories, his own, his own understanding of how the world works and what would make it better to allow those things to have crept into the book of Mormon or to intentionally have been placed in the book of Mormon in a way that, the document now becomes a an enigma that we really can't quite put our hands around and just to be comfortable with that. Do you think there were actual plates buried in a hill? Do you think the Angel Moroni story do you, do you still hold on to that? I don't I don't this is going to sound callous. I don't care. Like I don't care if there were plates. I don't care if the book is ancient. Like the book is scripture to me. When I read the Book of Mormon and I still read the Book of Mormon, that book speaks to me. If if Mormonism decided tomorrow that Bill Real couldn't be a part of it, that I had to leave, that I had to that I had to be cast out of the Garden of Mormonism, like I'm taking my Book of Mormon with me, and and I don't know what I'd do with it, but it's with me. And and more the Book of Mormon is scripture, and I think Adam Miller's right. Like like if we're praying about the truth of Moroni, we're missing the boat. Moroni is asking us to pray about these things, the things in that book recognizing that there are pieces and parts that I think are unhealthy, that taken as a whole, it's scripture to me. It's sacred, holy writ that encourages me to have an experience of the divine. Whether there's gold plates or not, who cares? Like I'm having a relationship with God in part because of the Book of Mormon. Who cares if it's ancient or not? I know, I know like people on both sides want to like die on that hill. Like, I've already left that hill. I'm standing somewhere else and watching you guys all fight. I don't care. 
like I'm holding the Book of Mormon in my hand and it inspires me and it draws me closer to God and it helps me to have a relationship with the Christ of faith, I could care less if there's metal plates or Joseph has got a piece of paper in the bottom of the hat that he's reading. It doesn't matter. When you first learned about uh, seer stones and that that was the actual way that the Book of Mormon was uh, came forth, did it bother you? Did it take you a while to to deal with that, that change in the narrative? No, I, I learned that narrative really early because I had read Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History even before joining the church. And so I knew about the seer stones, the peep stones. I knew that Joseph had tre- did treasure digging. I, I still was kind of a naive way of putting all that back together. But sadly, there was a, there was an arrogance. Like I was, I was puffed up in pride that I knew these details and other people didn't. And, and so I like, I like held these details up at times as a way of saying like i i know more than you i'm 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 more informed than you and look at how awesome i am because i know these things and so they really weren't something that made me uncomfortable rather they were they were something that made me at the time think like i i'm better because i've 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 know these details and and sadly like as i've gone through time and gotten to a place where i just see like the pain and hurt, the betrayal and the loss of trust that come when people discover this stuff. Like, I don't know. Like I just, I've just grown up a lot and they've never been things that, that I saw as like disconcerting. A lot of these messy details never were disconcerting to me. I just, I just wish that we had talked about them all along so that every one of us knew them. There's, there's just no reason why none, there's no reason why a 50 year old active high priest or sister in the Relief Society learns this stuff for the first time in 2016, 2017. So do the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon bother you or give you pause, or did they ever? Yeah, they did. There was a time when they did. I used to I used to have all these simple apologetic answers for all this stuff, right? That Shoot, shoot me a few. When, shoot, oh, shoot sure, us a like, couple. You know, like I laugh today at the idea of a taper being a horse, Right, I chuckle and giggle, and that's funny, right? But but if you would have found the bill reel of fifteen years ago, I would have been saying like, yeah, Joseph's using the word horse, but there has to be some other animal that he just doesn't know what the name of that animal is, and so he's calling it a horse. But it's, it, isn't it strange, Chris, that he doesn't know he doesn't know what to call that animal, so he calls it a horse. But he but he knows the guy's name is Nephi. Right, he knows the guy's name is Moroni. He knows the guy's name is Jared. Uh, he knows later on the guy's name is Mahanri Moriankamer. Um, it, it seems odd that God can give some details and yet Joseph is stretching and reaching for others. So someday when I just like I wake up and I'm willing to just like be vulnerable to my my sacred beliefs, be vulnerable to my identity changing, and to to experiencing that loss. Then all of a sudden you're willing to look at these criticisms and say, wait a minute, there, is there something to this? And, and when I did that, yeah, there were, there were weeks and in some issues months of like back and forth and hurting and then figuring, thinking I found an answer and then finding out that answer wasn't quite sufficient and just kind of wrestling with that, which is the wrestle that every one of these listeners who's listening right now, every, every one of them's wrestled in this way. 
Like we go back and forth. We we want it all to fit and we're willing to like like read for twenty hours on end if it'll just put the pieces back together and 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 sometimes it goes back together for a little while and then you find something else and you go back down the rabbit hole and it all comes apart again. Um Thomas McConkie talks often of like this, this breaking open and this closing up and this breaking open and closing up. I, I think that's the story of what we've all gone through. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you on the same vein of the book of Mormon being scripture to you or being holy scripture. Is that how you consider the book of Abraham? Is that how you view it as scripture as well? Or does it, do you think that one's more messy? No, let me, let me go further. So one thing I did last year was I spent a considerable amount of time listening to the Mahabharata and, uh, and the, the specifically the book within it called the Bhagavad Gita. And it's obvious when you begin to listen to what this book, which the Hindus consider scripture, as you listen to it, you begin to realize that these are just mythological stories. They're, they're just so, so fable-like, they're so mythical, that you realize they have no real basis in a historical event. But but the Hindus still find these stories to be sacred, to be scripture, to be holy writ. And and as I listen to these sacred books, as I listen to the sacred these sacred writings, like I walked away saying, Wow, that's scripture to me. Like if someone said you know, name, name things that are scripture to you. I would, I would say like, I spent some time in high school reading the Quran. That's scripture. Um, I wouldn't have said that at the time. I might, I might have even laughed at it at the time. But today, if you said like, what's scripture? I would say the Quran scripture, the Bhagavad Gita scripture. And, and in that same vein, whether the book of Abraham is historical or not, who cares? It is scripture. If, if a sacred, if a writing is considered sacred, by its community. And that sacred writing helps its followers to have experiences with the divine. Then what better definition of scripture can there be? Well, that's, that's not Mormonism's description of a definition of scripture for sure. What's Mormonism's definition, Chris? Uh, well, Mormonism's description, uh, Mormonism's definition of scripture would go something like the word of God revealed to man through his prophets. Okay. Did, did God, so, so President Kimball in 1978, their first presidency wrote a letter and it had something to do with the love of mankind, the love of God for mankind. And in that letter, President Kimball and, and his two counselors Make a statement, something to the effect that God utilized Muhammad to, and delivered spiritual insight and delivered, um, spiritual and moral truth to him and others to deliver to those whom they had effect on. I know I'm chopping his words up and, and rephrasing it completely different. But at the heart of that is the idea that Mormonism, it allows within its own theology, this space for Muhammad to have been utilized by God and to have delivered from God truth. And, and where else, like, is, is it not fair to say that uh, there's not pieces and parts of that truth in the Quran? Uh, not as a practical matter. We, we're not that expansive in our view of scripture. 
uh, we, uh, our church would not take the book of Abraham and put it next to the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita and say those three books uh, carry the same weight as far as scripture. Do you disagree? And, and I do because if, if it's, if the followers or adherents or the readers of those sacred writings are experiencing God and experiencing the divine, then who the heck am I to say like, yeah, but that's not as important as the book of Abraham. That's not as important as the book of Mormon. Like again, there's 0.2% of human beings who are in Mormonism at this given moment. And Mormonism has only been on the earth for such a short time. And the book of Mormon has only been available for such a short time. If, if I were to take a, an account of all of God's children and who and to what degree his children have had spiritual experiences with the Bhagavad Gita versus the Book of Mormon, like it would be overwhelming in favor of the Bhagavad Gita. Let's take it up a notch. The Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth. He didn't say that about any of these other um, uh, scriptures as as you're referring to him. He said the Book of Mormon was the most correct book of any book on earth. How can you put them all in the same category? Obviously, he didn't. So if at the end of the day, if if Mormonism has something true about it, and if, and if the truth of Mormonism is the doctrine of Christ, the idea that faith, repentance, receiving sacred ordinances, and then enduring to the end – if, if that really is the, the, the map of the plan of happiness, then I can, I can stand behind the Book of Mormon and say that book explains that plan as succinctly as any other holy writ on this earth. But that might be the Book of Mormon's divine purpose. That doesn't make it scripture and everything else not scripture. Right? Like, like, a holy writing is a holy writing, and if God comes through that writing and people have experience – like, I get it. I'm Mormon. I've raised my hand in common consent and accepted the Book of Mormon as binding to me. It is my canon. It is the scripture, among other scriptures, that are binding on me and a binding on the Latter-day Saint community. But being canon and being scripture to me are two different things. If scripture is the written word of God – then, then any time God has spoken through anyone and that person has written it down, then that's scripture. And it doesn't mean it has to be canon. Like I've not accepted the Bhagavad Gita as binding to me. And so it's not my religious canon, but it is sacred holy writings. It is scripture. And, and I don't, and I don't think, I don't think if you put, if you got Elder Uchtdorf or Elder Christofferson and you got him in a room and you said, look, just, just, I'm going to ask you a question. I just want a good answer. Is the Bhagavad Gita scripture? Is the Quran scripture? I honestly think there's a good shot those guys would actually say yes it is. Symbolically, I've accepted the Book of Mormon, right? It's, it's, it is the book that I am bound to in the religious journey that I am taking place in. I got it. Right? Yeah. Right? It's, it's the book of which God is gonna say, this is the book I'm holding you accountable to. What did you do with that book? I, I, symbolically, I've accepted that book as binding on me. Um, I haven't accepted the Quran. I haven't accepted the Bhagavad Gita, but I'm, but I'm willing to recognize that God has spoken through those writings just as strongly as he's spoken through 
the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Book of Mormon. And, and I think to say otherwise is is to take an arrogant stance that neglects the data, neglects the spiritual experiences that God's children have had since the beginning of time with other writings besides the Book of Mormon. That was really good, though. Really good, good answer, man. Really good. Um, and, and not an easy question, you know? Right. Excuse me. You make the apologists uncomfortable. You make the critic angry. And everybody in the middle is going, hell yeah. I know. A really, really good question. To uh, Amazing way that you answered that question. Um, well, let me ask you this, Bill. Uh, polygamy bothers a lot of people. How have you reconciled it? How have you dealt with it? Or does it still make you angry? And as I guess uh, also polyandry. So the, the very ways in which the, the church or, or the apologist have excused away Joseph Smith, right? They've, they've washed his hands by saying he didn't have sexual relationships with young girls. Those relationships were just ceilings. Um, he didn't, he didn't enter polyandry with any woman who wasn't already divorced or separated from her first husband. And those relationships weren't sexual. And yes, I mean, he asked Emma for permission on some of them. And the fact that she said, no, he was, he was at the, at the mercy of an angel with a drawn sword. And so he just had to do this for all the, all the excuses that we make to wash Joseph Smith's hands. If we just step forward to the very next prophet, Brigham Young and those who followed him, they are doing the very things that we want to wash Joseph's hands of. So polygamy is a mess and polygamy is hurtful and it's full of trauma to our community. And and, in some ways, Chris, I'm just lucky. I'm lucky that I live in 2017 where at least in mortal two, two people living that kind of polygamy, like that's no longer binding on the saints. It's, it's been um, discontinued at least in terms of mortality and and so I feel kind of comfortable saying, like, whether 132 is from God or not, I don't know. It makes me really, really uncomfortable. I don't like polygamy one bit. And what I, would, what I wish the church would do, and it represents where my own heart is, I wish the church would take 132 and kind of, like, recognize that eternal marriage can be found elsewhere, that we don't need 132 to to hold on to eternal marriage and just take 132, set it off to the side and say like, whether it's from God or not, we don't care. It's no longer binding on our community. So we're just going to set it over here and it's just not going to be part of the accepted canon in our church that the saints have as binding on them, that, that it's just going to be a detail of history and we're just going to live with it off over there and not part of our sacred writ anymore. Oh, that'd be great. And I think I think it would it would solve the angst for a lot of the sisters in the church if we could just say like look, it maybe it's from God, maybe it isn't, but but it's just not binding on any of you anymore and so let's just not worry about it. One more question on this topic. Let's say that you are living you and your family are living in Nauvoo, say 1842. And you're living uh, on the corner of Parley Street in Maine. <laughs> and your teenage daughter comes home and says, I've been offered a job in the mansion house working for Joseph and Emma. Do you let her take the job? Uh, knowing what I know now, 
And, and again, I'm not saying Joseph did anything appropriate. What I'm saying is that just like in today's world, if somebody was accused of molesting a kid, but they were never found guilty, would I let my kid hang out at their house? Heck no. And in the same vein, like I don't know that Joseph did something inappropriate. I, I know the evidence can go kind of both ways, but I'm, I'm nervous enough about how Joseph, um, how he approached relationships with young women in the church that I'm uncomfortable enough that there's no way in all of this world that I would let my beautiful, precious children serve in that home at that age. No way, no way, no how. Amen, brother. And, and you can, and you can judge, you know, the, the listener, whoever, you know, if, if the strengthening church members committee is listening, like you can judge me all you want for that. I, I just don't, I would not want one of my daughters 200 years later for, for historians to be debating whether the prophet of the church had sex with my 14 year old or not, whether that relationship was sexual or not. Like there's enough risk there that I'm going to protect my kid. And there's no way in the world they're working in that house as a maid. I hear you. Um, different versions of the first vision. Do you remember when you first discovered there were multiple versions? Uh, same thing. It had to be early on, but I didn't delve into them deeply. I didn't go off and try to find them again. The internet when I mean, you know, you're just a touch older than me. Like the internet just wasn't this big thing when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, it was just starting to come on. There were these really generic, really lame looking discussion boards to kind of participate in. You could do a few little searches on America online and whatnot. The information just wasn't as easily available. And I, and I even remember before the internet kind of where I had to go to the library and look for a book and ask my library to request it from another library and wait two weeks. And then that book would show up and I'd read it and then I'd send it back and get a different one. And it just wasn't as easy to put together. And, and so I just accepted the apologetic answers that there weren't that many differences. They're reconcilable. There's no big deal. It wasn't until probably when I was 28 years old or so, somewhere around there that I just delved into them and realized like, oh my goodness, Joseph's describing these experiences very differently. And I didn't know what quite to make of that. And it's, it's only recently where I think Richard Bushman has kind of given us all permission by his statement, right? As the foremost scholar on Joseph Smith, by his statement that he finds the 1832 account to to be the the most believable as a divine experience to his understanding of Joseph and his culture. And I think all of us right now are beginning to kind of wrestle with what does it mean if that 1838 account is less accurate and that 1832 account is a closer representation of the experience that Joseph had in that grove? I think that's a fair statement. The 1832 account's... So beautiful and so simple. Right. And, and the apologists want to argue that, you know, there's false memories and we change our stories based on our audience. And, but, 
but none of that works. And here's why, because the 32 account is the closest of the four accounts to the actual event. So if it's a false memory, that seems like that would be the most accurate account if false memories are getting into these accounts. The other thing is that this is Joseph's own personal journal. There is no audience. The audience is him. The audience is him and God. The audience is just him bearing his soul on paper of what happened. And and I think to to try to alter that 32 account and make it fit the others... I think is is in some ways unethical in the here and now, knowing what we know now, knowing the details of that experience. I think you're going to see the church over the next 20, 30 years have to walk back that 38 account and, and find ways to add credibility to the 32. Yeah, possibly. Um, I've got one more really tough one and then, and then let's move on to some other topics. Knowing you as well as I do, uh, when the November 5th uh, exclusion, the LGBTQ policy came out, I know that it uh, devastated you. I know it um, put you out of commission. You were you were very upset. And there's a time listening to your podcast back then where you're really, really angry, really hurt. I don't, I'm not even sure you were um, sure whether or not you were even going to stay in the church. Uh where are you now? Well, how, how did you get through it first, and, and where are you now? So, I mean, thank goodness for friends like you. I mean, that, that moment – let me say this too. I'm, I'm stammering because I want to set this up. When I look back like at my environment, um, I, I didn't have a, a child in my home who had come to me and said, hey, dad, I'm gay and and then this policy comes out and i'm having to choose like like my life was good and in my life the details of my life fit really well into a mormon narrative there there was no real reason for me to have gotten bent out of shape and to have experienced a faith crisis to have been emotionally traumatized by the policy like my life was it was an easy Mormon life where where I fit the status quo and maybe even in some ways are seen as excelling in it. And so there's just no reason to kind of wake up and shake the scales from my eyes. But I but somehow I did and I, I don't know how to explain that. And I, I like I want the listener to know like I don't have an explanation for what ha- causes it and what doesn't, but just to honor the fact that those scales did fall. And, and when that policy came out in November of 2015, I think the first episode or two I did after that was called an emotional gut punch. And I've heard so many people afterward, even recently, describe it that way. And it really was like it, it just hurt. And I remember coming home that night and, and you and I had talked on the phone earlier in the day and were like sharing with each other that we had just discovered that this had happened. And I come home that night and I just sat in a chair and actually just stared at my computer screen with the monitor shut off and just stared at it for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes and, and just like fighting back tears. And like, I was like, at that moment, I like put my foot down and said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not staying in this thing. Why, why would any of us stay in this thing that just keeps punching us in our gut? Like why stay? 
And, and so the next day I call you again. I said, that's it, Chris. I'm out. I'm done. I, I can't do this. Um, to, to borrow Brad Wilcox's words, I, I can't do this Mormon thing. And I'm ready to just like walk away and call it quits. And, and something you've just been really good at in our relationship is in those moments where I'm just standing at the ledge and just like looking around and saying, why am I going to stay on, you know, th- this good ship Zion isn't, isn't the boat I want to be on. And you've walked me back from that ledge and you've said like, let's take our time. Let's, and I, and I, and I'm saying this because the listeners out there, many of them feel alone and they're going through this, this faith crisis, this faith deconstruction and reconstruction. And they feel so by themselves. They feel so alone. And, and they have these moments where they're like, that's it. I'm done. And I can't, I can't testify enough of how important it is to have good friends around you who honor and validate like your truth and your story and, and share in that narrative and share in that experience. And, and one of the things you've just done that's been incredible is in those moments is say like, let's just take our time. Let's slow down. Let's, let's just take a few weeks and just like, let this kind of simmer for a little bit and see what we can do with it. And, and as I stepped back and said, okay, I'll do that. And as I took those, those couple of weeks, um, I think I realized as those two weeks came to an end, there were a lot more things that happened in those two weeks. If everybody remembers at the end of those two weeks, I said, Hmm, maybe I can hold this. Maybe I can hold this, this space of pain. Maybe I can hold this trauma. Maybe I can just like put it in my backpack and carry it around with me. And it'll actually be something that makes me better and makes me more empathetic to people around me. And And I have to add, like, since that policy, there have been people within my own immediate and extended family and people who live near me who have come to me since then because I'm a safe voice who's holding that space and in some ways been a resource for them. And if if I had just bailed, if I just walked away, like, they would have had one less safe person and and so i'm simply saying like there's value in staying and again i'm not saying it's for everybody because i i honor like if you if if mormonism is hurting you if mormonism is hurting you so bad that it's just not a good place to be like walk away and you and you don't need my blessing but you have it but for those who who can hold it and stay i think living in this tension Living in this, this trauma, this unhealthiness, in some ways can be really positive to your development and can also be a, a resource or a tool in helping other people. And, and I'm not saying it's for everyone or everybody comes out on that side, but I think for some that holds very true. I, I appreciate that. It was a very traumatic time for so many of us. Um, and I really want to second what you're saying that we need people around us that we can be vulnerable with, that we can yell at, that we can cry with, that we can shout at, that we can be ourselves around, uh, in order to get through the hardest parts of, of our, our, our faith journeys, uh, in Mormonism. We were in, uh, when the, when the policy came out, I was, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I had my family down at Disneyland. We were on a, uh, one of my 
children's birthday. And my kids, since we've been back, my kids have still have said, do you remember that's the bench you sat on for two days, dad, where you went, when you were on the phone with Bill? Um, it seemed like that entire trip <laughs> for two days, you and I were on the phone, um, working it back and forth. Neither one of us really having an answer, but just being able to talk through it and talk it out and look at it historically and in just all the many ways that people have to parse things out when they're in trauma. Right. I mean, I, I remember being, I remember being at my grandfather's funeral and this is several years ago and people walking in and walking up to me and I didn't, I didn't know these people walking up to me and just saying like, like I knew your grandpa and, and here's a story about him. And like this moment when all I wanted to do was just cry and yet somebody, somebody being willing to kind of like share in that moment in, in kind of form that connection, like it became this beautiful thing. And for many ways, like the policy was that the policy was awful. It is something that has caused trauma from the moment it was announced or leaked to this very moment. It still causes deep and painful trauma in our community. And it'll continue to do so until we can come up with some, some better way to like, say like, this isn't it. And we need to come up with a better explanation for what we're doing and how we're going to do it and how we're going to love each other in the process of working this out. But having you and, and your brother who I'm good friends with and, and your wife and, and a chance for kind of just me to just like share share that experience with you of us both going like this hurts, this sucks and we can't make sense of it. Like if I'd have been by myself, I, I can tell you right now I'd have been out, I'd have been gone. And, and yet having you to bounce things off of having you to kind of calm me down and say like, let's just be patient and let's see what this looks like in two weeks. It, it made all the difference in the world. Thanks, man. It's good to have good friends. Um, switching gears here, what do you say to someone who reaches out to you and says, Bill, I don't believe anymore. I'm leaving the church. Please help me. What do you say? So the first thing I say is like, if, if this is hurting you, if this is, this is so painful that, that the thing that just you know, you, you've, you've sat with it for a little while and, and it still just seems like the only thing you have a choice to do is to walk away. Then, then by all means, step away. And if that means like taking a six month, you know, sabbatical break, then great. If that means you, you request that your name be removed, like that saddens me. But if that's how you find peace and you found peace doing it, God bless you. Like when someone calls me, and I take phone calls all the time, Chris. When someone calls me, they say, like, this doesn't fit. The first thing I try to do is, like, honor. Like, whatever decision you come to, I honor it. And I validate it. And, and I respect it. And, and you don't need my blessing, but you have it. And then the second thing I do is say, but let's slow down. And let's just see if some of the ways in which I'm, I've reconciled this, that I'm continuing to be in this, like, let's see if any of that resonates with you. 
And, and then I'll go into detail about how I define the church, how I define priesthood, how I define true and living, how I define church. Um, what I see is the nuanced ways in which we can still be Mormon and still believe, still call ourselves believers, and yet we're not swallowing the dominant narrative or feeling like we have to pretend or feeling like we have to be inauthentic. And and just to walk people through what that looks like, I had a guy call me a couple weeks ago and and he was ready to call it quits. I mean, he was done. And he said, Bill, but I don't want to be done. I want to be Mormon. Like, help me see how you're doing it. And so I took about 45 minutes, maybe it was an hour or so, uh, before before I started work the one day and we're just on speakerphone and we're just talking and we get done with the phone call and all I did was say like, here's how I do it. And we went through all of that and we get done and about an hour later, he, actually at the end of the phone call, he goes, I don't know if I can still do this. I'm going to think about what you said. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, kind of let that sit for a moment with me and I'm just going to see what, what I make of it. And then he, then he messages me about an hour later. Um, just an instant message on my phone. And he says essentially like, I've been thinking about what you said and I'm just going to stay at this. Like I can see there's still some work to do here. And, and I want to be, I want to be part of why Mormonism or how Mormonism changes. And so I'm going to hang around. Now that was a few weeks ago and I've had conversations with the guy since and he, I mean, he's still going on Sunday. He's still, He's still trying to make it work and, and it feels like there's this renewed, um, renewed energy from him. And, and again, I'm not saying like I have the perfect way to work this out. Like Bushman does it differently than me. Uh, Patrick Mason does it differently than me. Terrell Givens does it differently than me. And those guys are offering the ways in which they make it work. And I'm just, I'm just setting on the table, you know, one seat at this big table. I'm just putting a plate out and saying, this is how I make it work. And if it's helpful, great. If it's not, then find another voice. And at the end, if you need to walk away, then fine. But I find like Mormonism is a really fun place to grow and to become something more than what I was before, if that makes any sense. And with that, part one is over, my friends. If you guys want to click the next file, you can jump into part two. Thank you.